What kind of person are you really? What makes you happy? What are your likes and dislikes? Are you inherently grouchy or pessimistic? Are you a night owl or a morning person? What causes you stress or brings you joy? What scares you? These are the questions author Nikki Tucker poses in her new book, Things to Remember Before I Forget. Join us as we discuss all the tiny pieces that make up the bigger puzzle of who you really are and how those pieces can curate a better care plan for you in the case of future cognitive disabilities. I will be drinking Knob Creek smoked maple. What about you? I would like to welcome my guest, Nikki Tucker, who is a new book out that she co-wrote with Jenna Tucker called Things to Remember Before I Forget. And here's a copy of the book. And I think we're gonna find it very interesting for one thing. Second, I think it starts the discussion on the aging process and how we really need to start thinking uh, that if we at some point have to have additional care, what that looks like, uh, how we want the quality of life to be best for our last years. So Nikki, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. The first question I'm asking all my guests is what generation are you in? Well, I'm at the tail end rumors. Uh, sometimes I get lumped in with the next uh, Gen X, but just at the very tail end. Okay, great. And I had a discussion with all the generations, and it's kind of interesting to see the different perspectives of that. But what is your personal philosophy on aging? Do you have one? I do. I just turned 60, and that was really hard on me. I just like, oh my gosh, I'm 60 now. Now what? But as I've settled into it, as I've realized 60 is not so bad, I actually find myself using that as an excuse. It's like, well, okay, what do you expect? I'm 60. <laughs> I'm kind of leaning into it, enjoying it now. But getting old, my perspective is it's it's not for wussies. It, there's a lot to it, more than people realize. Just an example, this happened this happened to me the other day. I went to the dermatologist. So I got a bump on my face. She was, oh yeah, well, when we get old, that happens. I'm like, well, gosh, okay, thanks. And then a few weeks later, I went to my dentist and I said, I keep biting my lip. He goes, well, yeah, as we get older, we do things like that. Your muscles relax, you're going to bite your lip more. And I was indignant. I said, nobody told me this stuff about getting old, but you find all these things that happen. When you talk about how things are getting older and you find out things onto it, what are maybe some of the lessons that our generations have learned from previous generations? You know, I've seen, I saw my my in-laws who at 60 were old 60, gray hair, glasses, stoop. They didn't do anything. They didn't go anywhere. They sat in their home at 60. And I see people now in their 70s, very vibrant, active. And I think one thing we've learned is just because you hit this age doesn't mean you need to act that age, that it's okay to still enjoy life and be active. You know, as long as you can do it, why not? Exactly. And I have the same philosophy, too. I think that probably we need to learn how to live with aging, but allow it to enhance our lives, not necessarily take away from it, which is good on that. One of the things I really liked about your book is just how it made me think about aging and what I liked, didn't like. So what idea or how did you come about on doing this book, publishing this book and writing this is it's kind of a funny story. I my daughter lives with me and I are pretty close and she'd gotten this mother daughter journal for us to work on. I'm working on it one night and then I'm getting ready for bed like I always do. And I go upstairs and I have this nice little cold sore present from my mother. 
that she gave me when she used my lipstick. And so when I have it, I put a little Band-Aid on my lip. And then I go to get ready for bed. And I always take off my pajama bottoms because I don't like to sleep in them. And I'm thinking to myself, as I put the Band-Aid on, I thought, I should tell Jenna, you know, when she gets old, takes care of me, that she needs to be doing this for me. And then when I get in bed, I thought, I should tell Jenna, I don't like to wear pajama pants. Mm-hmm. And I just started laughing. I thought, well, like, she's going to remember this when I'm, you know, 20 years from now, when I'm 80. Uh, well, I should write a book for her. And it was like, boom. I mean, I, I jumped out of bed. I ran in a room. And I said, Jenna, Jenna, get up, get up. We've got to write a book. She's like, what? And I go, come on. <laughs> and it was just like that easy. Well, good. And it does make it really easy uh, when you put it in that realm to do that. But all these things that I know, uh, you know, and we work a lot with clients that aren't able to tell us what they like and dislike. And so we just kind of have to figure it out. But to have it written down, I think, is very, very cool and uh, very, very helpful. I do the same thing with my 92-year-old mom. I ask, you know, she's very cognitive, very aware, and so she'll tell you exactly what she likes and doesn't like. So, but if she didn't have that, it'd be very difficult for me to determine what she did. So what type of individuals do you think are going to be utilizing your book? It was the thought when I first started creating it was this is for people who they've gone to the doctor. The doctor says you have dementia, start putting your affairs in order and start thinking about, you know, what you want to do. And so that was the original thought when I was working on this. But as I continued to work on it, I thought, you know, a person doesn't have to have dementia to be documenting this stuff. You might want to make sure that it's there in, in case. Even as simple as I fall asleep with my iPad running old shows. That's how I fall asleep. I cannot fall asleep with that. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, turn back on. It's the only way I can sleep. Now, if somebody didn't know me, they wouldn't know that. And so I'd be having restless nights and tossing and turning. So it's just anyone who wants to make sure that they're going to get the care they want should be filling out the book. And, and I agree. There are certain things like I don't like eggs for breakfast. Do Don <laughs> like, don't give them to me. I will not eat them. Um, <laughs> right. The other interesting thing is don't wake me up at six o'clock to give me pills because I'm just right. not going to do it uh, because I like to, I'm not a morning person. Um, right. But how do you think this is going, if we have a book that has all these likes and dislikes, how do you think people living in say assisted living or some other setting are going to be able to, they are, the setting is going to be able to adapt to the person because they're pretty regimented on their, on their schedules. Well, when a person goes into facility or when they, you know, we do in-home care where I work, when a person comes on to care, you know, we're creating a care plan for them. We're saying, this is when we're going to get you up. This is what we're going to feed you. This is when we're going to put you to bed. And a lot of times we're just, we're just guessing. It's just guesswork at, at what this person might like. We don't really know. And so yeah. having this written down, you know, we have people that fight against going to bed at, at eight o'clock because they want to stay up till midnight, but we don't know that about them. And so there's a constant battle almost between the facility or the caregivers who are trying to mold somebody into what they think they should be and the person themselves are like, no, that's not what I want. And so this, I think, will really help alleviate a lot of that incoming struggle when somebody first comes out of care. And it makes it more individualistic, I think, is the right. key here. Uh, and you and I know that that's very important as we age, that the person realizes that you know they don't have to change that they can continue to like, dislike, and do the things they need to. It's up to the facility and to us as individuals that work with them to make the changes. And I think right. that's very important. So, you know, we have adult family homes here in the Northwest. Now, sometimes the rest of the country doesn't. I 
Do you think this will be a better tool for it to use in those smaller settings, adult family homes where it's more one-on-one care? You think the book would be more valuable to them? I, I live across the spectrum. We have a client we do in-home care for, 24-hour care, and he likes three eggs for breakfast, three poached eggs. That's what he wants. And he's been having that for years. And we had a caregiver who absolutely refused to do those for him because she said, oh, that's too much cholesterol. He shouldn't be having three poached eggs in the morning. And she got very upset that that's what we said he liked. And I think having it in his own writing saying, this is what I want, would have helped her be able to say, okay, it's okay to give him those three eggs that he wants. And so I really don't think it's, I don't think it's just limited to the, to the family homes. I think, you know, across the spectrum, caregivers will be able to interact more appropriately with their care receiver. What I think it will be almost interesting for family members to take a look at what their parents or their spouses or whatever uh, is putting into this book. I think it should be pretty earth shattering to me. Would you agree that this is going to be a whole new basis of knowledge? I completely agree because there are things that I just, you know, like, you know, like think about the cold sore. I don't tell anybody about that. Nobody knows I do that at night. That's just a little thing that I do for myself. And so it's not, you know, even though you live with a person, you're not aware of their little idiosyncrasies or the little routines that they have. I, for instance, I hate to wear wool. Don't put wool on me. It irritates me. But my husband doesn't know that because I don't wear it. But he just, he's not aware that I don't like it. Yes. So and even I, things like that. I think that's very true. So. We dwelt, uh, talked a little bit about how the book was developed and how you feel like it's going to be utilized in the, the uh, environment of, of caring for someone. But the book itself was written that it kind of walks you through the process. So how did you determine how, what, how the book was going to be laid out for the processes? I started kind of with general, general overview of the person. What kind of person are you? What makes you happy? Personality traits? And then I kind of narrowed down into more specifics, likes and dislikes, veered off into medical history. Again, uh, medical history is an important, important piece. As a, as a geriatric care manager and with the Aging Life Care Association, one of the things we come across is, and this one happens all the time, I would take a client to a doctor and they'd want to do an MRI. And they'd say, does this person have any metal in their body? I don't know. I don't know if you can do an MRI on this person. And so even something as simple as that, I thought was important to include. So it got into specifics also about medical care and what you do or don't want. Also, a very timely man item right now is some people, anti-vaccinations, don't ever give me a shot. Others are, you know, September 1, they're at their pharmacy saying, give me the flu shot. So things like that, it gives people the chance to speak about what they want. So more specific to the medical and then into just other topics like do you have technology? Do you have uh, end of life desires? You know, kind of looking in towards the end of life. Again, what do you, what does the person want? I'm yeah. off having my family around and having people talk and things like that. Some people want to die alone. Yeah, exactly. One of the things is you were right up to date. I saw you had, had you had your COVID-19 uh, vaccinations in the book. I went, oh my gosh, this is really up to date here. So that's great on that one. And you're right about the vaccinations, whether you want them or not uh, to do that. But that was kind of interesting. And I looked at that and went, yeah, you know, this is going to be part of the, the life pattern that we get forward is these type of vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. To do that. One. Sometimes the, the process seems a little overwhelming. I'm sure to folks, if you get a book and you have to look at this, and do it. There's a, there's a questionnaire out there on healthcare 
what do you think of doctors dying all that good stuff i gave it to a friend of mine that was aging and he said it he after looking at it he went to therapy because it raised up all these issues for him doing that and i kind of laughed and thought well it probably will but how do you talk to someone about say i have a parent that i want to share this book with how would you suggest that we open the discussion maybe about how this could apply it's different than going to your parents and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I want to be your financial POA. I want to make medical decisions for you. It's a very non-threatening document because you're not asking them to take control. You're asking them to outline what they want. And so it's not a legal document. I actually put that in the book so people are aware this is not a legal document. But it's merely a, a map, if you will. Say, you're giving me a map of how you want to be cared for. So and I also think then that it does open the door for those more important documents like advanced directives and medical and financial POA. It kind of, you know, you, you kind of ease your way into that discussion with your parents. Right. And although there's a lot of private individuals that are more private than others of sharing and doing that one, uh, how do you approach, would you approach that person versus one that's really open about everything? I think it really comes down to making the person understand that this is your choice, what you fill out and what you don't. Mm -hmm. um, it, they don't have to fill out the whole thing. They can fill out the bits and pieces that are important to them, but making sure they understand that, yes, we understand your private, but this really is so that your care is the way you want it. You know, and even though you're private and, you know, certainly there's something, you know, certainly you're okay to talk about whether you prefer meat and potatoes or green beans and corn, you know, yeah. things like that. People are usually, pretty open about their food likes. And so you start with the easy ones first. Great. Um, I think this would be an excellent tool for facilities and social workers to look at and utilize when they're, when they're looking at, especially in hospital discharge, to set up the right environment for the individual. So do you see that being used in that particular case as well? I think it could be used across many spectrums. I, I don't see it as being specific to anyone. So certainly hospitals, discharge planners, facilities, homes, even in your own home with in-home care. Um, it's just a matter of making sure people know what it is you want. Exactly. Where you might go. Well, I think it's just an excellent book. And I really looked at it and went through it. Like I said, the COVID thing, 19, just blew me away. It's already in the book. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I actually... I'll just share with you. It was, it was done. It was, it was, I self-published it. I kept going back and saying, I need to add this. I need this one morning in the shower. And I don't know what it is about showers, but that's why people do their best thinking. I was in the shower and all of a sudden I thought, oh, I forgot to put in a section on immunizations. And I ran to my computer and sent that off to the publisher saying, you have to include this piece. Well, like, it, was, it was great. I really enjoyed uh, looking at that piece and realizing it was in there. So, You've got this information. You talked a little bit about the care plan that's kind of developed that you're that you guys do. Um, if I don't know what a care plan is, or I don't know how the system works with care plans, would you be able to explain a little bit about how this book could tie into that process? Which is, if you're an adult family home, assisted living, skilled nursing, whatever, uh, in home care, you would have one of these plans going forward. So when a person goes into a facility or on in-home care, uh, regulations and just common sense means that the facility is going to create a care plan or service plan, as they're also known. And that plan will dictate what the caregiver is going to do for that person. It's going to talk about what meals will be prepared and served to them, 
It's going to talk about what time do they get up in the morning? What time do they want to go to bed? It's going to talk about what their favorite foods are and how they like to eat and when they like to eat. And so they create this care plan generally in a vacuum. They have no information about this person who gets moved into their home or when we get a client uh, on service and get this call and say, come do a service plan. And so a lot of it's just guesswork on the part of the caregiver. Having this in place uh, at any of those settings will help lead that care plan in terms of writing it for that client. And no matter where you go, you're going to have a service plan. I mean, they're required across every type of care that a person receives. And so the care plan, usually the ones I've seen are done on the medical side, have more information on the medical side than they do the preferences. Is that something that you, you've seen as well? I think there is some medical piece to it because certainly the care plan is going to include diagnoses and medications, but most service plans also include, you know, just the everyday life tasks that, you know, sometimes if they're in facility, you know, how often am I going to shower this person? How often am I going to take their trash? How often are we going to do the laundry? And so it encompasses all domains of a person's life, not just the medical piece of it. As a power of attorney for healthcare, sometimes when we, the service plans are developed, they're never revisit it very much <laughs> well they're supposed to be we do it because of time restraints and everything i see that it's really not done that much so i i would encourage family members that really look at these things to make sure that the plan is appropriate and fits the needs of that specific time for that individual as well and using this as a tool i think your book would be used as a tool to make sure that that they're up to date Part of the reason I think they do get changed, when you come in, you do an initial care plan, you know, they have 30 days to create one, and then they review it to make sure, like, they may have, get this person up every morning at 6 in the morning and feed them eggs. And after a month, they're like, oh, this person doesn't want to get up at 6 a.m. and have eggs. And so they have to revise the care plan. Having this is going to really cut out a lot of that revising, revising, because they already have the information they need. That's a great point, one I wouldn't have thought of, Nikki. So, yeah, that that's great to be have it. So you're going to start from a baseline, I guess, of where the person currently is, so you don't have to guess what they like, dislike, how to interact with them, because you already know them. Right. So, yeah, I would have never thought of that. That's a great, great insight. Thank you so much. So, one of the things that I really liked about the book and is, and I have little markers here on things that I just think are really cool. You started out the section about me, which I thought was really cool. And then you have all of these personality and you have grouchy, pessimistic, you also have happy and sad. So how is this going to be? I'm sure several will be checked on this one. Right. Uh, is, that, is that the sense? So how do you, how is working with somebody that's pessimistic and grouchy or different from working with somebody that's happy, pleasant? Well, you can certainly tailor your approach to them. I mean, yeah. if you have somebody who's grouchy, you know, don't come in there with merry sunshine face because <clears throat> they're not going to react well to that. And uh-huh. so if you know their personality traits ahead of time, I think you can have a better rapport with them. And, and I think, too, on the pessimistic side, because we have clients like that, I think you just make sure that it doesn't bother you as, as being a caregiver and kind of taint how you approach that individual that you say, I think that that's probably their own personality and that's where it needs to stay. I'm doing that one. But I, I really like this because I think it will help us approach people completely differently 
if I know what they are. So you have that, which is just great. And I love all, all those things. And, and then you have sections in here, like I have these ticks or habits, which I thought was really cool uh, to do that one. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking my 92 year old mother, she loves people magazine. <laughs> so, you know, we have to have a subscription to people magazine. So that's a little thing. If she doesn't get people, then she's not going to be a little happy camper. Exactly. Uh, about that one. But I think that those are all just very interesting, interesting things. So when you talk about ticks and habits, what are some of the things that you might want to look at in that area? Well, some people are, and it kind of almost goes back to phobia. Some people don't like to be where it's dark. Some people don't like a lot of loud noise. I I break into song. If you say a praise to me that's a, that triggers a lyric, I'm going to start singing. And you know, it's like, but it's just one of a habit of mine. And so people yeah. are kind of used to that. And they're like, why is Nikki singing? Well, because you said this phrase. And yeah. so it just it's just a way to just get to know people a little bit better. That's not so much of a care thing, but just a way to get to know who this person is. Yeah, exactly. And people are going to think of a little bit more about this. And you have in here stressed items, which I thought was really good when you get stressed in doing that one. Do you see as we age these changing or is the no. baseline there or is it going to be consistent through the lifetime? I think, I think some personal changes come about with, with dementia to some point. Certainly we see people who were very straight laced and, you know, would never let a word escape from the mouth who might be less filtered. Mm -hmm. But overall people's likes and dislikes aren't going to change, you know? And so, so yes, there'll be some changes in some areas, but what you like, what you don't like is going to be pretty consistent. Cheaper Snow, who wrote the forward and is a dementia expert, alluded to that in her forward that, you know, who you are and what you like doesn't generally change over the years. And that would be something I would not have thought about either. And that's a good insight into that. I would have assumed it would have. Yeah. So I'm going to be basically like I am now when I get to be 85. So that that's kind of interesting. So I guess I better better take note of that. Well, gen generally, people don't go from being this grouchy, mean, rotten person, and then all of a sudden become, you know, Pollyanna when they turn 80. That's true. <laughs> Very true. And we certainly have known several of those. That's fantastic. You do a, a, one of the areas that I thought was kind of interesting, especially with our generation, is the use of racial drugs. There's a session on that. Yes, there is. And so I, I thought this is kind of progressive in doing, especially in the Northwest where, you know, we have the marijuana shops here and doing it. But I think that's a great section. So how did you, did you really just kind of come up with that, that that needed to be here? Or how did you, how, I mean, these are really insightful things. Well, as you know, uh, regarding myself and I had a client who liked his marijuana and this was prior to it being legalized. It was legal for medical, but not for recreational. And so one of the things we did as his guardian was we went and got a medical card for him so he could get his marijuana. We actually, he disappeared from his adult foster home and we found him at the train station. He had stopped by downtown Portland, picked up his marijuana, was going to get on a train to head out of town. And so we told him, no, we will make sure that you get your marijuana because that's important to you. And so we did. We went and got him a, a marijuana card and made sure that he had that. It, which is great. And I, but that was a section I would not have even thought about asking those questions, which I was really kind of cool to do that. 
The other thing is that I liked here is a section on scare, things that scare me. I thought that was an excellent uh, section on that because there is things that scare us. So you have some things in here, flying, riding in a car, the dark, which I was really kind of, do you, uh, one of the questions I had on this one was, do you include anything about the fear of death, fear of dying? Is that covered in another section? You know, it's not. I, I think I alluded to death in the end of life and how people felt about it. But you know what? I don't think I specifically asked that. And that probably would be a good one for my second version. Because uh, obviously, that's that's a fear that I personally have struggled with all my life. Um, yeah. And so, but some people are just like, hey, when it comes, it comes. So obviously, people have very different views on, on accepting that. So no, I don't have anything in there. I do. I did cover the section on phobias because I know that it impacts people greatly. I mean, if people are afraid of, for instance, spiders, and they go into a room where there's a spider, and they're going to be freaking out over the spider, and people around are go, well, what the heck's the matter with this person? Why are they freaking out? Yeah. Because there's a spider in the room. I, I just thought that was interesting on that one as well, to do that one. And then you did this wonderful section about I like and what I do not like, the yin and yang, and, that, and drinks, animals, scents, what you like, flowers. I just thought that was a great way of saying, okay, I do like this, but I don't like that. So what are some of the examples on holidays, for example? A uh, person, I don't particularly like Christmas er er holiday because of all so much people and things going into it. But to do that, so how did you, how did you really take a concept and put it into this? I guess is the question I'm asking. Because this is pretty unique. Uh, what people, have, everyone has their favorite holidays. You know, I'm I prefer Thanksgiving over Christmas because you have the family and the and the food without the burden of the pressure of gifts. And so that's that's my preferred holiday. And but some people hate Fourth of July. There's fireworks and the noise and the you know. And so I, especially in terms of veterans, you know, that can be a very alarming time for them. And so I want them to be able to address, hey, when it's the Fourth of July, I might act out. Yeah. Exactly. But I just love that I like and do not like next, next to each other. I just thought that was way too good. And then there was a whole section that I wouldn't have thought about either. And it's, I like my feet. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to go barefoot. I don't, please don't make me go barefoot. And so that one was like a no brainer. I have to at least have socks on my feet. I do not like being barefoot. Well, I just thought that was great because I was going, now, how do I feel about this now? <laughs> so, actually, I'm going to go through and do the book uh, and answer some of the questions. But I just about was looking at it, said, with socks, shoes on, bare, you know, all those good things. I would have never thought of asking that, but it's an important question, especially when you're having to provide personal care to an individual to determine what they want. So, yeah. To yeah, it's that. funny. It's funny because, like I said, I woke Jen up and it was like nine o'clock at night. And I said, Jenna, we got to write. So I, and we were up till I passed one in the morning, just throwing out, what about this? What about this? And so we had a whole long list of, you know, ideas and questions that we would ask. And that's, you know, she did memory care for five years. So she knows too. Yeah. What, what, what do we need to ask people? And there's a whole section on things that I like, dislike, clothing, what I like, don't like, and textures and fabrics. And we know not put wool on with you, <laughs> but I, you know, again, I have to look at that and I'm going, okay, really gets me to thinking about some of these things, which I think is totally cool. 
Then we have, then you broke it down to from about me into health and wellness. So what kind of things did you want to have in that section that you think is important for uh, a person to, to answer for one thing, but secondly, important for others to know? Well, the things about the vaccinations, the things about the, the MRI, I, for many years, from the time I was 19 to the time I was 34, I had gallstone attacks. So for 15 years, I would go to the ER. They would check me for everything under the sun, but never once asked about my gallbladder. Not once. I didn't fit the profile. I was young, skinny, female. And uh -huh. finally, at 34, they discovered I had gallstones, and they took out my gallbladder. I go to the doctor every time now for a pain, and every time they say, oh, do you still have your gallbladder? No. <laughs> they never asked me when I was having that. I couldn't ask that all the time. So I just find that kind of funny. So this gives you a chance to put down things like, I don't, you know, so they don't waste their time looking at a gallbladder that might not be there anymore. Absolutely. But I, it's part of the thing is you get into uh, like cancer. Do you want chemotherapy, radiation, all of those different types of things? Always, never, or what the doctor recommends, I think is it. So it's really going to help you get into how you really think about some of these things with doing that. So our agency also serves as healthcare representatives. And because the, the advanced directive is so limited in what it asks, I actually created these forms for our clients first to ask them these questions about what if, what type of care would you want? And so we actually give just a little five-page questionnaire to all of our clients asking these questions so we can better serve them as their healthcare representative. Yeah, absolutely. I just read an article, uh, June Psycho Psychology Today, about end-of-life decision-making uh, and heading to do with a Canadian program that's death and dignity like we would do in Oregon or Washington. But the individual that they picked a date and time to do it was one that had cancer and elected not to do anything for that. And so I think if he had known uh, if you had not known that he didn't want to do anything, you probably would have gone and tried to treat it, but he decided not to do it. And I think that that's an option that we tend to not forget that people have, that they have the option not to treat. It actually, actually, Gary, it, it came out of a client that I shared with you at one time. And, and they found a mass on her ovary, and we were trying to determine whether or not to biopsy it or just let it be. And we really didn't know what she wanted. Did she, would she have wanted that removed or not? And I think the, I think the decision was finally made to leave it because she was in such an advanced stage of dementia that the surgery and the aftercare up would have just been so distressing for her that, that nothing was done. But I remember thinking that time, well, we, we don't really know what she, would, what she would have wanted. And that's very true. And so if we had some idea of that, then we would be better able to make a decision. But I think in that particular case, the decision not to treat and keep comfortable because of the dementia and age right. was, was, I think, compassionate to her. Right. To Absolutely. That. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I include that question. There's, would your answers be different if you had dementia? And, you know, and I think that's a great point and a great insight, Nikki. I don't think we would, I, I think people have to look at that, especially as we're living longer, whether do you want the same treatment if you have capacity versus if you have dementia and quality of life, I think is important. So how do you address quality of life? There are some sections in here. I think in terms of activities, in terms of what people like to do, you know, how do they like to spend their free time? What, what makes them happy? 
are the mm -hmm. questions that would address it by life. Or even just food. Again, a client of yours that I had was, um, my orders were when I'd go see him would be to stop at McDonald's and pick up a cheeseburger for him that I would take to him because he liked McDonald's cheeseburgers. And that brought him a little bit of quality of life when I would go visit him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times we forget about the joy of food. Uh, my uncle that I was guarding for in Oklahoma was 94 or 95. Loved eating. It was the only thing he did. Had no short term. And they, I had to sign a waiver saying it's okay for him to eat cookies and drink Dr. Peppers because that's what he wanted to do. But I think that made his day if he was able to do that. Just those small things. Just the small things, sorry. To do that. The other thing that you do on that you break down here is the life support, your thoughts on life support. And so how did you approach that particular thing? You have irreversible, near death, expected to recover. How did you come up with those categories? That's pretty insightful. I think because, again, the advanced directives are usually just, do you want life support? Do you not want life support? And obviously, there are very, you know, if, if it's going to make me come out of whatever it is I'm in, then yes, put me on life support. We had a client recently who, we don't know what happened to him. He just, he was fine in the morning. And by that afternoon, he was in ICU. They don't know if he had a seizure or strokes or what the deal was, but he was he was non-responsive. They hooked him up to machines. They had a ventilator. I mean, the whole nine yards. And two days later, he was fine, and he's back home again. If you check no life support, would we just let him pass? Yeah. You know, and that that would have been a shame because obviously this was something that it was a benefit for a few days for him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times when you put somebody on these ventilator feeding tubes, they think they're on them all the time for the for. The rest of their time, but you can always come in and make the decision to not do that after starting the treatment. And I think that that a lot of times doctors don't sit there and talk a little bit about how you know we might try this. If it works great. If it doesn't, then you have options. But you're right. The other one had to do with terminal illnesses, and there's a section called experimental treatment, which I thought was really kind. Of cool to do because there is out there a lot of experimental treatments. So how, what are some of the experimental treatments you might look at if you were trying to answer this question? So a lot of it depends on, you know, if they have cancer and are there, are there trials going on? I've, I've had, my son had cancer, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and my daughter-in-law had ovarian cancer. And they were both young. They were both in their 20s when they had their cancer. And certainly they would have taken whatever you could have thrown at them. You know, mm -hmm. is it as experimental? Yeah, I'll try it. We saw this with COVID-19. I mean, they were throwing everything but the kitchen sink at people trying to see what would stick. And so, but we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But are you willing to put yourself out there for an experiment to try and save your life? And so that, you know, but not everybody is. Everybody's like, oh, I just want to try it and true. Don't, don't experiment on me. So it's really an individual decision. Yeah, it absolutely is. I have only had two clients that have had ex experimental treatment, had to do both with uh, Alzheimer's diagnoses or dementia diagnoses to try new treatments out there. Unfortunately, there just hadn't been out there to do that, doing it. So, yeah. So I just thought that was really a good insight into that. Well, and we, I, I had a client before I started doing care management. He uh, started shuffling. He started showing memory loss. Well, it turned out that he had uh, water on the brain. I don't know the medical term for it, but basically there was water on the brain. And it's a risky surgery 
But if it's successful, it can turn things around. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he had nobody who would sign up for it. He didn't have a POA. His sister was like, I'm not going to touch that one. And so nobody would agree to this surgery for this man who then just continued with in the progression of dementia because yeah. the doctors wouldn't do it without anybody okaying it. And that one broke my heart because yeah. it's like if he'd had the surgery, his life could have been completely turned around. And, and I think that's another point is that if you go through this book, the follow-up would be to make sure you have a, a healthcare power of attorney so that you can have some of these issues addressed and someone with authority to, to make those decisions for you. So absolutely. Right. And even for that, this at least, again, if you, you know, and I thought of it more in terms of, you know, for people like you, for guardians, because you guys are coming into these people with, with no information. And so to me, this is a really good tool for guardians to say, how can I do substituted judgment for my clients? Yeah. And this is how, because they've told us. Exactly. And so substitute judgment, just for our listeners, is when we have to make decisions based on incapacity of what the person would have done if they had capacity. And so a little bit of this, so if you tell me that I want experimental treatments, we would go, oh, that's what they had when they passed. So we're going to try this. We're going to do this. If we don't have that, we have to do the best case, best interest. And there is no baseline. There's nothing to ask these people uh, to do, but we just make the decision based on the information we have. So I think right. this is so important. And I think that guardians uh, would, you're absolutely right, benefit from this tremendously uh, in knowing what their clients are. So uh, we'll be buying a few more copies and giving these out to some of our clients. <laughs> uh, the other section is my life. And this was really interesting in that it laid out a little bit about your life jobs, but I liked the section that says on here, my best memory as an adult and my best memory as a child. So I think those are really good. And what would, what, how would we interpret that when we're dealing with someone that, that maybe had gone into dementia? How would we use these sections for that? You know, it's funny, I, I almost didn't include that because there are a lot of guided journals that just talk about, you know, my, my growing up years. And so I almost didn't put that section in. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that is important because it gives us a little bit of insight into who this person is, how they were raised, what made them tick. And when you know what's your favorite memory, my favorite memory as a child is being in the, in the woods, at camping, the trees, the water. And so that sends a picture of nature and that is very important to me. And so I think it just gives us a little broader picture of who this person is and what was important to them. So you're going to do a second version of this, you said. <laughs> I think I'm going to need to. <laughs> Good. Because I think it's important. I just, uh, it really, really uh, helps in trying to define how I am as a person, makes me think of it, but also how to share with others what I like and don't like. So I think that's just great. And so you talk about, you have a memory loss section here which was talking about diagnosed with dementia, the date, and how that progression works, which I thought was also very insightful. This is the word I use because you go, what am I afraid of? What can I still do? What I would like to do while I'm still alive, all able to, not alive, able. So I think those are great sections. And so how can this section be utilized as well by the end? That was originally my opening 
that was originally my opening oh. section because the book yeah. was originally geared towards people who had just been diagnosed with dementia. So it was originally the beginning of the book, moved further back because it then was no longer the focus of the book. But I think, again, it's really important for people to have a place to write down what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. We, you know, so often people, you know, you get this diagnosis and sometimes people feel almost ashamed as if they've done something wrong. And this is a way to talk about what's burdening your heart, to write down mm-hmm. what you're feeling and what you're thinking and to, and to focus on, okay, so the doctor says I have a dementia, but I can still do this. And I may have a few good years left, so I still want to do this. It gives you a chance to focus those thoughts together in one place. And I think that the benefit of that is getting them to focus on the positives in their lives, not the negatives, which dementia is a negative to most folks and should be. Um, so I think that's a great tool to, to really have them do that. And I really appreciated that section being in there uh, to do that. Uh, the other sections you had were when I need care, which I think is important. And what does that care look like? So uh, home, facility, all those wonderful things. But then you went into some interesting areas of dementia, which is if I wonder and if I get aggressive. So could you explain a little bit about why those sections are there and how that information may be able to be utilized by the person? Well, like I said, so the book started off really general about the person. Who am I? What do I like? And then we're kind of narrowing our focus down to, okay, now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. Here's, here's the care I want based on all this other information. Uh, people do wander during dementia. People do become aggressive. And so we need to know how to deal with that wander. You know, we're going to probably put you in a locked facility. How do we make that more comfortable for you? Will you be understanding that you need to be in a locked facility? Sometimes, and I've seen this with families especially, they have a hard time saying, oh, I promised mom I would do this. I promised mom I would do that. And they say, I can't put them into memory care. I'm abandoning them. I think... For a person who recognizes they have dementia and recognizes that they have care needs that the family might not be able to take, I think them putting in writing to say, if I'm wandering, it's okay to put me into a place where I'm safe. Mm-hmm. My mother-in-law took care of my father-in-law with his dementia, and he would wander out of the house at night, and she would go out, and she was just a little bitty thing. And it got to the point where one time he reached out and struck her, and she, could, she couldn't get back home. And she finally had permitted a facility, and it broke her heart. Sure. I think putting putting in here the words that if I wandered, it's okay to get me the care that I need mm-hmm. can help relieve that burden from family. Well, that's, that's a, again, a great insight. And I think it's important that individuals taking care of parents or others realize that a promise to take care of them and not put them there in a nursing home or something is things change. And you have to be more flexible and adaptable. And I think this really points that out, that if they start to wonder, then, yeah, I might need a higher level of care. The aggression is going to be a little different, I think, in how you deal with this. So how would, how would we deal with the aggression issues? And what types of aggression are we talking about here? So we have clients that hit, spit, pinch, kick. Uh, we had a client who broke one of our caregiver's eardrums hitting her with the shower head. I mean, you know, we, we've seen it all out here. And so, unfortunately, right now, the best behaviors we have for dealing with aggression is medication. Yeah. And so, the person may recognize, if I'm aggressive, it's okay to medicate me. I don't want to hurt anybody. 
I, I'd be mortified if I knew I broke somebody's eardrum. It's okay to medicate me to stop the aggression. And I think that's a good point too. And uh, the the flip side here is to make sure that we're not overly medicated. Because <laughs> sometimes we do over-medicate. But I thought that those were interesting insights into a person's ability to know that they might need a higher level of care. So I just thought that was too cool. One of the other things I did that I liked about it was how, uh, if they're, and go back to the very beginning, if you're introvert or extrovert, and, and you know, a lot of times when we put individuals into a skilled nursing type facility, they're going, well, they should be going to bingo. They should be doing this, doing that. I'm going, they didn't do it when they were younger. They're not going to do it now. So I think realizing that those individuals are not going to do it is part, part of the barrier to overcome in understanding the individual. My mother's like that, not social. She doesn't like the dining room, which, but she's fine in her part. So that's good to be able to do that. So, and it, it talks a little bit about who can make decisions for you. So it does do the groundwork for a power of attorney for, for healthcare. Right. System to do that. Just so they can include that in there. But as, as I stated at the beginning, it's not a legal document. It's not right. really for the third, but they can say, Hey, this is the person that I would like to make decisions, especially if it comes to a point where they need a guardian, then they know who to go, who to go after. Exactly. And who to, to the person trusted to make these decisions for them. Right. And then there's a whole section on final days, which I thought was kind of cool. And I love how you did final days instead of depth or whatever onto all that. So what are some of the things that we should need that would be important to know out of this section? It's a tough time for everybody. It's tough for the family. It's obviously tough for the person going through it. I think uh, my father, I was with my father when he passed and we had, and he actually said to me, I'm dying, Nikki. And I said, I know. And then he pretty much lost consciousness after that. And I sat with him for three days following that with, you know, we had music and he said to me, well, I'd like music. So I played music for him and I just stayed in the room with him because I knew that was what he wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone has their own preferences for what they want at that time. I had a client one time who was on hospice and hospice, there he was, no one dies alone. And so they sent volunteers in one right after the other. And there was like a 30 minute gap between volunteers. And that's when he passed. <laughs> they said, maybe he didn't want anyone in with him when he passed. And so it's wow. private on that. You know, and that's a good point. And um, the article that I just read about the assistant Death with Dignity Act, there was one of their clients that did want, did want to die by himself. And the crux of it was kind of cool. He was an amateur clown. So when he when he passed away, he was dressed in his clown outfit, with a big red nose on because he wanted people to laugh, be happy. So I just thought that was a great outcome to that. So now I've got to figure out my costume this happens to me so, to do that one. And then you, you go into, of course, the religious preferences and spirituality, which is also a big part of that right. process to do. And then you do the after I'm gone and your medication list, which is always updating. And then the, the diary. Tell me a little bit about your concept for the diary. So if you notice that each section, I have a, a few lines at the end of each section saying, checking in, how are you feeling on this day as you're filling this out? 
because I don't anticipate somebody's going to sit down and just go start to finish with it. You know, you might do a few pages and do a check and then, and the diary again, it's leaving. It's an, it's a note for your family. It's a note for how you're feeling, how you're doing. It's a chance to document what's going on in your life on those days that you're writing it. I don't anticipate that people would do it daily, but if something occurs, you might want to jot something down when something's important. Mm-hmm. Like if I were doing a diary now, I might've written down the day my grandson was born three months ago and how, how that made me feel. And so it's just a, a place, again, to keep it all together of important things, important things in your life that can be shared with others. And I, that's, that's a wonderful way to end the book is on that note about sharing wonderful things or how you're feeling down. That's, that's a great, great deal. Again, Nikki, any thank you so much for being my guest. I love the book, Things to Remember for War for Gift, My Plan for My Care, which is Nikki Tucker and Jenna Tucker who wrote it. And I'm looking forward to the second book. <laughs> There's something else out there. I'll, I'll come up with it. <laughs> I'm sure you will, but what a great concept. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't talked about? I can't think of anything. We've pretty much covered it. Thank you, Gary. Oh, thank you. It's a wonderful book, and uh, I'm really thought-provoking, and I hope individuals will pick it up and and share this with their, their family members, especially as we age. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle, presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton, of SignalCast and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.